this week, we have got David Newman breaking down the Emmanuel Sanders trade. We have got Denton Day returning for a second stint here to review that puddle in Washington. And we wrap it up with Billy Marshall from Cat Scratch Reader to preview the game against Carolina. Let's go. Welcome to this week's edition of the NinersNation.com Better Rivals Podcast. My name is Oscar Aparicio, and this week we are sliding into the sixth consecutive win Wednesday. This marks the Better Rivals 300th show, and with me this week to celebrate number 300, it's David Newman. Holy shit, I didn't realize it was 300. Yeah, Man, I don't know. You pulled me away from Toledo Ball State, um, and so it's good to know that it's at least for a milestone episode here, you know? Yeah, it is a milestone episode. Uh, you know, I think the loyal listeners want to know where you're at because it sounds like you are in a super secret dark hole with no lights where they lock you in to make you watch Toledo because the only reason that you should be watching Toledo is if they've locked you and put you in a clockwork orange type situation. <laughs> hey, again, I would like to really stress that there are windows, you know, it's not dark. There's ample... Ample light in here. You've got a new um, well stand. Well ventilated. Desk. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Let's talk rundown, though. We're going to open the show this week with the rundown because big news. Emmanuel Sanders is now a San Francisco 49er. And, of course, I remind you, David, the last time the Niners traded for a Sanders in season, they won the Super Bowl. So <laughs> because of the transitive property in sports, I think that's a thing. Uh, basically, this means the Niners are going to win the Super Bowl, right? Of course, I see no other possible explanation. There are no flaws in that logic. But the Niners traded, of course, a third-round pick and a fourth-round pick, received a fifth-round pick in return. So effectively what it is is it's, it's getting him for a, a third-round pick because the, the delta between the Niners' fourth-round pick, hopefully later in the fourth round, and the Broncos' fifth-round pick earlier in the fifth is probably what? You're thinking like 10, 12 spots at most maybe? Um, so it really was right. like for a, a supersized third round pick. Right. Yeah. I think the, when, when you just look at it purely from like a value standpoint, like only this one trade in isolation, um, and you, especially you compare it to, you know, the second rounder that it took for new England to get mom new, um, you know, I think I would, I would much rather have Emmanuel Sanders just, you know, equal, like I think Emmanuel Sanders is just a better player than Mohamed Sanu right now. And then to pay less effectively to get it. So I think from, from that perspective, it's fine. I think it's, it's more just looking now at, at the 49ers situation for this upcoming draft. And the fact that they basically, as of right now, after the first round will not pick until round five. And, and um, I think that's always a little bit concerning. I think it's banking pretty hard on, uh, you know, something that they were doing last offseason to a degree and has kind of worked out for them this season. So, you know, maybe maybe it will again, but it's that kind of banking on development of young players to kind of as opposed to feeling the need to add additional bodies. Well, they've got a first round pick. So if anything, they might trade back from their first round pick and maybe get some of that mid round capital, which the, the right. argument that yeah. you can make is effectively, well, they're they're undefeated right now. They are playing very, very good football. They don't have a ton of uh, a ton of holes to fill, so maybe you don't need as many draft picks if if you don't trade down. I don't know that I necessarily agree with that argument per se. Um, trading for Emmanuel Sanders, sure. I think, kind of proves that point. 
But ultimately, the Niners do, I think, get a wide receiver that is immediately the best wide receiver on the team. Like, that's that's the critical piece here. There's not a wide receiver currently on the 49ers that is as good as Emmanuel Sanders. Now, he's 32 years old. He's in the final year of his contract. And the question that a lot of fans have is, where does he play? Because for the Denver Broncos, he's lined up primarily on the outside and about a quarter of his snaps, he's lined up in the slot. Uh, There was one year, I think two years ago, where he lined up in the slot about 50% of the time, 55% of the time, but that seemed to be more of the aberration. And and so that's the question, David, is where does he play and whose snaps does he take away? I mean, I think he's kind of, it's one of those things that's hard to say because he is just like, the he's he's the Shanahan like prototypical receiver right he's the type of guy that he likes to add and it's guys that have some versatility he can play in the slot he can play outside um you know he's a good route runner we always talk about um the it, it sounds very basic but like the two things that you really need to be able to do to be a Shanahan wide receiver is you need to get open and then you need to catch the ball when it's thrown to you right and i think that's effectively what he does he's he's still a good route runner um, has been has very good hands and um, is rarely going to drop passes. And so I think from that perspective, you know, he fits in as the type of guy that we talked about, like with Debo Samuel, right? He can do a little bit of both. And so I would expect them to just kind of do what they do, which is have a, a fairly healthy rotation uh, among the group. And I think he's going to line up outside. He's going to line up in the slot. Um, and, and they're just going to kind of move those guys around. I mean, I think it depends on how I think they feel about those other guys in the slot. Right. I think right now that's the thing that they're, they've been missing. They're two guys that they planned on playing predominantly in the slot and, and Trent Taylor and um, Jalen Hurd have obviously been out and, and not playing. So I think he could fill that role uh, if they wanted him to, but he, he can kind of do a little bit of everything. Yeah. When you talk about getting open and catching the ball, Emmanuel Sanders this season has 43 targets, 30 receptions, all 30 of those passes were catchable, zero drops. Zero drops yep. for Emmanuel Sanders. The dude has good hands. So, uh, you know, I think when, when you're absolutely right, I think he plays all over the formation and all over the field because he can play in all the spots. I think the transition into the 49ers offense is going to be quite a bit simpler because he does play for Rich Scangarello right now, who has lifted the, the Shanahan offense, but not the play calling or its effectiveness uh, and moved that over to, to Denver. So I think he'll be able to slot in pretty easily. I do think, though, that the person who I think is going to see the most reduction in snaps is going to be Dante Pettis. I think Debo has established himself when he's healthy uh, as being that kind of chain-moving guy when it's not George Kittle. You can see the plays that Shanahan has designed for Debo, and and they're the the plays that get him in space. And I think Marquise Goodwin, I think Shanahan's always wanted to make him more of of a a deep threat, maybe that Taylor Gabriel, not, not a gimmick role, but someone who does really threaten with his speed. I think Emmanuel Sanders becomes the the fixture, the starting wide receiver that is that everyone else moves around. And, and so I do yeah. think that Dante Pettis is going to be the person who sees the most reduction in snaps. And, and that really is unfortunate because, you know, while he has underwhelmed this year, I do think he's still a talented wide receiver who just needs to get reps. Right. And I think, you know, uh, I, I don't like I think Goodwin probably because right now the way the 49ers have been to this point in the season is you're seeing uh, effectively Debo Pettis and Goodwin, you know, Debo's missed one game uh, in there compared to the other two, but has, they're all relative equals in terms of snaps, you know, on, on the season. They are all they're They're the three that are over 200 
all between 200 and 240 right now. Um, and, and so I think, yeah, you're, I, I definitely agree that Sanders comes in and he should be, uh, you know, barring maybe a week or two at most would, but like you said, the transition shouldn't be too, too steep for him coming from a, a similar offense and hopefully, uh, should be able to pick up a lot of the terminology and stuff pretty quickly. So I think, yeah, barring maybe a one or two week buffer there, like once he gets fir- firmly established, he should by far be the top snap getter. Um, and then, yeah, I think Pettis and Goodwin, if I had to pick, because like, like you said too, Debo's kind of got his role. I think he's going to get his snaps and that's not going to be impacted too much, but it's the other guys, it's Pettis and Goodwin that are likely to see a reduction. Now, for me, this does elevate where I think the 49ers offense can get to. And, and so far, they haven't had to lean on their passing game too much because the game scripts have all been positive or been completely rained out. But I, I do think <laughs> that eventually they will get to a game against, I mean, hell, it could even come against Carolina, right? But you think about the New Orleans on the schedule. You think about Baltimore on the schedule. They're going to need to throw the ball eventually and win through the air, um, either because they get down or because they're going to get into some kind of a shootout. And, and I think that this gives them an, a very viable, very good wide receiver because Emmanuel Sanders currently, even at 32 years old, is playing really, really good football. His, when you look at the way that he's graded out, at least in the PFF system, he's been consistently above average, even despite his Achilles injury. Yeah, I mean, he's been, uh, you know, overall for us this year, uh, I think is like a top 15 guy. And, and when you narrow in on kind of what he does well, it looks even better than that. So, I mean, he's a guy that, uh, again, like all of these Shanahan receiver types, like they win in the short and intermediate area, right? So if you look at just purely his targets beyond the line of scrimmage, but under 20 yards, uh, he's our fourth greatest, uh, highest graded wideout right now. So it's basically Chris Godwin, Devontae Adams, DeAndre Hopkins, and then Emmanuel Sanders um, in in those kind of short and intermediate targets. So uh, yeah, he very much is still playing at a very high level. and, And I think, you know, he obviously gets to go to, a much better situation, uh, at least as far as quarterback goes and, um, you know, offensive design and, and should get some more opportunities than what he was getting, uh, you know, even at, at Denver there. So, uh, yeah, I think the fit is great. And um, he, again, is still, like you said, at the top really is, is he is immediately very clearly the best wide receiver on this team. And ultimately, if he leaves, because this is his last year under contract, I don't know that it will be the end of the world for the 49ers because, of course, he's still eligible to earn them a compensatory pick. And while the formula is not publicly known, lots of kind of reverse engineered that compensatory pick formula. Um, Over the Cap has a great write-up on it if you want to learn a bit more. But basically, the formula really relies on a player's average per year money, their playing time, and some postseason honors. And, and you basically... If, they, if he leaves and signs a, a big money deal compared to where the percentage of that APY is compared to everywhere else for the position, the Niners can get a, a, pretty, a pretty good pick. And so I don't know that at 30, you know, 32, 33, he's going to command like a huge deal, but he's still probably right. going to command something that would get them in the order of, I would imagine, like a, a sixth, fifth, or maybe even fourth round pick if, if someone sends him a lot of money. And, and that team could also be the 49ers. I mean, if the Niners have a deep playoff run and Sanders is a big part of it, he could just come back and do what players do, which is give a bit of a hometown discount to stay with a quarterback, a system, and a team that they really like. Right. I I think this is clearly a move that they're making, planning on taking advantage of this hot start that they've had and 
uh, and trying to make a push for this year. And I think if that goes well and, and like they plan on it, um, yeah, I think bringing him back on some sort of short term, even if, even if it's just a one year deal, right. Depending on what his, uh, market's going to look like next year and how many teams are going to be willing to kind of go after and give significant money to what'll be a 33 year old a wide receiver. Um, absolutely wouldn't be surprising to, to bring him back for at least another season. Yeah, the catch with compensatory picks is that you they reward you for basically losing players. And if you sign a bunch of other players, then that kind of nullifies the losses. So if the Niners let him go, but then they sign uh, someone else in free agency that's in that same tier, then those two things kind of cancel out. So that that's right. the only catch with compensatory picks. But other than that, I think overall it, it's a good move. I think they got I, I think they overpaid probably a little bit, but not so much so that it's in any way, shape, or form egregious. They've gotten a very good receiver who fits the system, who transitions quickly. Um, and hey, man, it's it's exciting times. The Niners finally got a wide receiver. Still not through the draft, but you know what? What what can you do? You got him on your team now. Let's let's time to throw some <laughs> let's throw some footballs. Yeah, man. I mean, it, it's they're, again they're going to need it here pretty soon. They probably got a couple more weeks where um, they they should be able to get by, you know, against Carolina, Arizona here with with some pretty positive game scripts still. But um, absolutely, over the second half of that schedule, if if they are going to make a serious push toward getting, you know, making a Super Bowl run or getting deep into the playoffs, like they, they are going to need to be able to throw the ball better than they've thrown it to this point. And uh, having somebody you can rely on to kind of consistently get open, which really hasn't unfortunately been the case for this group this year. Um, you know, they, they're kind of, it reminds me a lot of like what happened with the secondary last year, where it's like a lot of these young guys and everybody's kind of ready for all of them to take the next step at the same time. And and kind of none of them have. Um, and that's kind of been their receiver group this year. So bringing somebody in, you know, to pair with George Kittle, who it, it can be a reliable option and get open for Garoppolo, I think is going to be big. Well, David, we've continued the tradition of bringing you back onto the show in spurts when there is only running game to talk about, uh, because that game against Washington was basically <laughs> a mud bowl. But you know, we, we carved out the time to talk about the passing game. So thanks for coming on. You Absolutely. can get back to, you know, watching Toledo, which I'm sure is riveting. So pumped to do that. Oh, <laughs> almost done, you know, ready, ready to move on to the next one. The, the next Maxion game that I got. Oh, man. All right, dude. It was good catching up uh, and we'll talk soon. All right. Thanks. All right. Two other quick stories on this week's rundown. The first comes from longtime listener Gregory Weisberg, and it really is celebrating George Kittle because George Kittle is an absolute beast. On third downs, when he's targeted, he's 15 for 15 for 143 yards and a 73.3 conversion rate. The man is absolute money, and he gets a lot of lauding for his, uh, for his blocking, but he also should get a lot for his pass catching. Uh, and lastly, Jeff Wilson. Hold on to the damn ball, please. I, like, I knew that in the rain, the Jeff Wilson fumble risk was high, and I tweeted out, hey, don't fumble the ball because this seems like you're going to fumble. And then, of course, he fumbles the ball. Luckily, he was saved by a whistle, and it did not end up affecting the 49ers. But Jeff Wilson, please hold on to the damn ball. And now we move on to our game breakdown, and we welcome back Denton Day. But before we do that, let's take just a brief break to hear from our sponsors. Denton Day, it is good to have you back on the Better Rivals podcast. This is going to be one of the instances, one of the few instances, I, th I think, where the previewer also comes back to review the game. Uh, so thanks for coming back on. Well, I'm honored to be one of the few instances where I get to come on twice. I wish we had a better game to talk about, but I mean, 
we we're dealing with the cards we are dealt in that regard. We are indeed, man. The the really the, the weather was a great equalizer, and that's one of the first things that I think off the top of the board. It's just passing was not the order of the day. The teams had a combined, what, like 33 or 38 passing attempts total. If you look at Case Keenum alone, his 12 pass attempts were Washington's fewest since December 15th, 1990, when the Redskins attempted 11 passes in a 25-10 to 10 win at New England. That's a long time. That's about as many years as since the Niners have been 6-0. and Yeah, that's before I was born. So that, that gives you just kind of a time frame there. It's been a very, very long time. Holy shit. Yeah, that's, that is indeed a long time. But you know what? This game, it was really a game that shaped up for an upset because this game and the weather really forced San Francisco into Washington's strength. And Jim Tomsula, we totally forgot this was the Jim Tomsula revenge game. We talked about Vernon Davis. <laughs> he didn't play because he had a, a concussion. We talked about, I mean, there, there was other people that we talked about in this case. We talked about Shanahan revenge game. He gave the game, of course, the game ball to his dad. But Jim Tomsula, former batting 100 winning percentage head coach in 49ers history. We didn't even talk about the, the marvelous smile that must have been under his mustache because effectively what the weather did was it made it so that it was impossible to pass and that forced the Niners to run the ball and that was running right into the teeth of the Washington defense. Yeah, I almost forgot that um, Jim Tonsula was with you guys for a little bit. I realized partway through the game, I was like, oh, we did forget to mention that. But that, that, I mean, you're absolutely right. That is the kind of the strength of the Redskins defense right there. And uh, it forced the 49ers to to kind of go right into that. And it took them a little while to kind of get it going. But I thought they, uh, or I should say you guys in general, did a pretty good job throughout the course of the game, um, find, picking your spots a little bit, finding ways to, to create space in the run game and getting to the outside when necessary. And uh, obviously it ended up working pretty well in your favor. Yeah, ultimately, y'all have some some defensive linemen that can really flat-out play. We talked about them a little bit in the preview, but man, Matt Ioannidis, he really popped off the film this week. That dude was everywhere, especially in the first half. He was basically unblockable. There were several plays where he was shedding guards. There were several plays where poor poor, poor Dan Brunskill uh, and uh, Justin School actually at different points, he was able to just literally push them away, have them fall flat on their face, and end up shedding to make the tackle. He was getting double teamed and fought through those. He had one heck of a game. And ultimately, I mean, that's why the Niners couldn't get much going in that first half outside of, of a failed field goal. Yeah, he's one of the best kept secrets, I, I guess, on this team because not a lot of people know about him. And one of the reasons is because the team hasn't been very good since he's been there. But he is fantastic at what he does. He's just he's just strong. You know, some guys just have natural strength, and he has that mixed with the ability. Uh, to kind of finesse guys a little bit. So it's a it's a very nice combination, and just not a lot of people know about him because of the team that he plays for. But he does a really, really good job uh, doing a lot of different things for this defense. So he's kind of been, uh, I guess, the star of the defense so far. He's kind of the X factor a lot of the times. He had a really, really great game. And th that three, just in general, that trio of him, John Allen and Deron Payne, they're a great group. It's just unfortunate that the defense behind them isn't exactly pulling their weight we will say yeah you know Jonathan Allen had a great play where he was able to kind of ride with the, the guard as they were trying to block him and then just as he saw where the running back was going to break he immediately pushes him off sheds him and makes the tackle for one or two a minimal gain like one or two yards Th those defensive linemen man they are they're really really technical and they're very very good at what they do it was really a Jim Tom Sula what was shaping up what could have been a Jim Tom Sula revenge game because additionally the the weather really made it so that 
the lack of a passing game, well, the linebackers didn't have to respect much of the pass. And that meant that they were free to play downhill. And their run fits were really tight. The boxes were loaded. The, the linebackers didn't really have to respect a whole hell of a lot of the pass, especially early on. And so what happened, I mean, basically the Niners are running into a muddy box and the Washington Redskins were amped to play. And, and that basically made it for some stalemate football early. I guess that was almost kind of the hidden storyline of the game because you look at the Redskins defensive front and like I said, those three guys are great. But then you guys on that same side have a great defensive front as well. Maybe this was the, the storyline we missed, which was the play of the defensive line because both teams have a pretty good group going on. Obviously, you guys are, are up there as one of the best defenses in the league. And I guess we kind of missed that because this should have been something that I was amped for. And maybe I, it's hard to get amped for the Redskins games now. But just that matchup of the two great defensive lines going at it was something that uh, if you really like that old school football, that's something that you would look forward to in a game. Yeah, you know, I don't. So it's probably why I didn't look <laughs> forward to, to it too much. You know, I, I think I didn't really understand how bad the weather was going to be because I thought that the Red, that the Niners were still going to be able to move the ball through the air a little bit. And when I looked at the defensive front that Washington presented, I thought to myself, okay, Jonathan Allen, definitely much better in the run than he is as a pass rusher. Same with Ioannidis, same with Jerron Payne. You know, Montez Sweat, maybe you've got to worry about him, but you've got ways to adjust for him. And, and the 49ers are getting the ball out very, very quickly. I thought this was going to be a game where Jimmy Garoppolo could actually put the ball in the air, especially given your corners and how unsuccessful they've been so far. But the weather really did change everything, um, and, and it really changed the way the Redskins could play defense against the Niners. I mean, consider this. You look at the yards per attempt with play action and without play action for Jimmy Garoppolo. Over the course of the year thus far, it's been 10.9 yards per attempt with play action, 6.6 otherwise. The play action really does help him out. Defenses have to respect what that team can do on the ground uh, and in the air as well. And, and it puts those defenders in conflict. Well, against the Redskins, it was pretty flat. It was 7.3 yards per attempt with play action, 7.1 without. And so the, the robbing of the pass game really made the Niners one-dimensional for large stretches of that game. And it wasn't until they started to pass the ball really late in the game, uh, late in the, the second quarter and into the third quarter, that the game really broke open. See, I have this I have this weird question about how the weather really did impact the game because I woke up on Sunday morning and I live roughly about an hour away from the stadium. The stadium's at a very weird spot. It's nowhere near D.C. So I live about an hour away and it was raining when I woke up and I thought, okay, this is going to be interesting. And then when I see the, the game and I see kind of the videos before the game, I'm like, all right, it is, it's really coming down there. But we've seen in the past, we have seen teams in weather, whether it be snow or rain, they've had success in the passing game. So I almost wonder if it was more of a decision by both offensive coordinators to kind of focus a little bit more on the run. And obviously, I'm not there. I'm not a quarterback, so I don't really know what it's like to throw a wet football. But I was anticipating a little bit more of a passing attack from both teams. I was Because that's kind of the way to break the game open. And you guys did that with a couple big plays in the second half. And that's kind of what really got you guys moving a little bit. I was anticipating a little bit more of that. So I was a little little shocked, quite honestly, that we only had, what was it, 33 pass attempts through combined for the entire game. That was really, really weird to me. So I, I don't know if that was really because the weather and the balls were just that heavy or if that was more of the offensive coordinator saying, you know what, this is, this is just how we got to play the game this, this day and we're going to take it out of our quarterback's hands and just go full-blown running attack on both sides. 
Well, I can see why uh, Bill Callahan wanted to do that with the Redskins because I can see why he, you know, he said he wanted to get back to the run. I think his opening game script obviously was very run heavy. That was part of, of Callahan's plan. I don't think that was a significant part of Shanahan's plan. If you look at the way that ball, especially on punts, reacted to two things, one, hitting the ground, and two, not bouncing much afterwards, that's how big and heavy that ball is. And I think it really did affect Jimmy Garoppolo's accuracy, um, and he had to adjust to that a little bit as the game went on. But I think the big part was less, I mean, the ball was wet and it was heavy, but that happens in the NFL. The difference with a game like, say, the Giants game, where they're playing on field turf, is that the field had been covered in a tarp, yes, but it was still sopping wet. And so that meant that when the ball hits the ground, it absorbs more of the water. The footing is, is a bit more difficult. The pass routes are not as crisp. People are not as fast. That reduces the speed of Marquise Goodwin and all of the other receivers. It makes the reads easier for the corners across the board. And so I do think that weather was one of those things where I, I don't. I, it did affect that game more so than it did, say, uh, the Giants game or any other game in the rain because it was, I mean, it was bad. It was really, really bad. Uh, and it was, I think, like one of the top 10 fastest games uh, in the last couple of decades because it was only two hours and 37 minutes or so um, because I don't think it was necessarily part of the game plan to, to stay on the ground as much as it did. But you get to the second half, and all of a sudden the, the game breaks wide open with a 28-yard pass. Holy hell, a 28-yard pass. <laughs> uh, and, and really it was second and eight in the third quarter, and you get a 28-yard pass to Kendrick Bourne. Bourne ran a flag route with Pettis running the clearing route. There were two wide receivers to one side. Um, I, as soon as the ball was in the air, I was worried. I was really, really worried because of the way the game was looking. But Kendrick Bourne made some magic happen, and all of a sudden the Niners are cooking with gas. And that, that's one of the things I wanted to see a lot more, really from both sides. Because like you said, I'm not big on the, the whole old-school football thing either. I respect the elders. I know it worked at the time. But you want to see more passing. And I, I thought that was a great design, and I thought that was great timing as well because it had been such a big run-heavy game, and you knew that one of these teams was going to have to come up with some form of big play to, to really break it open a little bit. And logically, that would be in the pass. And so I thought Kyle Shanahan drew up a great play. I thought it was run very well. I was optimistic when I saw the ball in the air. So I was like, all right, well, we've already had one of these. Let's see if we can get another one. <laughs> Um, but unfortunately, it ended up in your hands, and then you were able to make some some magic with it, if you will. Yeah, and that was a play-action pass. You know, you think of the numbers that I said earlier about play-action pass and about how they were roughly even. Well, a lot of those yards that Jimmy Garoppolo got were on this play. Uh, and so the play-action pass didn't always help them, but when it did, uh, you, you know, it really did help them in a big way. One of the other plays that I thought was really, really interesting, and I think it goes to how good of an offensive play caller and play designer Kyle Shanahan is was the next big play they had to Richie James a little bit later in the game. It's a concept called squirrels, which I think is a hilarious name for a passing <laughs> concept. Um, it's just like squirrel, but it's it's really a counter or, or a, a complementary play to sticks. And sticks is a play that everyone runs in the NFL. And actually, Niners fans are familiar with it because the the Colin Kaepernick led 49ers ran sticks a whole hell of a lot. And that concept is not difficult. Basically, your wide receivers run to the sticks and break in some way away from the defender and get open, whether it be an out route or whether it be stopping and turning. Uh, but basically, you get to the sticks and, you know, the, oftentimes it's called a stick route. Well, what Kyle Shanahan calls at this point is the squirrel concept. The Niners are in 11 personnel, but they're in an empty set. You've got Bourne, Pettis, and Rich James aligned trips to the left on the boundary side. And you've got your tight end and your running back out to the to the wide side on the other side of the field. And so it's third and three. 
you're expecting a quick pass. I mean, it is muddy. It is all whole, it's crazy, right? And and oftentimes this is exactly the time you're going to get stick called in this exact situation. But instead, he calls squirrel. James runs a stick nod. So he runs like he's going to run a stick and then breaks it back inside. And he is wide the hell open for another really big, long pass. It's just plays that look like they're one thing but end up being something else oftentimes put that defense in conflict. It's that deception element. And ultimately, I think those two plays really helped the Niners win the game. And I think that's kind of the difference between the two offenses because Kyle Shanahan, of course, is, like you said, a great play designer. But that's also putting your trust in the quarterback. And because the weather was so terrible and we kind of I mean, we knew early on this wasn't going to be a passing game as much as we would have loved to see a passing game. We knew early on. But that's Shanahan trusting in his quarterback saying, hey, we need a big play. Jimmy, I'm going to put the ball in your hands. Let's go get some yards. And the Redskins didn't do that literally at all. And that I thought that I thought was the real difference. That's why it made me so upset that the Redskins only threw the ball 12 times because you're not trusting your quarterback. And Bill Callahan said after the game, like, we still rock with Case. He's still our guy. That's cool that you say that, but I need to see that in a play calling. And that's the big differences between that game in particular. It was Kyle Shanahan putting trust in his quarterback while the Redskins just didn't do that at all with Case Keenum. And that was the difference. Yeah, and I mean, you, when you're thinking about what Bill Callahan's staring at, he's staring at a defense that really inspired some of these turning points as well. Because on the offense, you've got those big plays. But on defense, the 49ers early on took the best shot that the Redskins had to offer and still managed to blank them on the scoreboard. Because those early runs were a little concerning. They really were. And, and they, were, they were the result of a couple different things. They were the result of some really good blocks from Washington. Uh, that crack toss play was actually a great play call from Bill Callahan because the Niners do often slant their gaps and they do exchange some gaps to mess up with some zone fits or some zone blocking. And Callahan called them exactly at the right time with a crack toss play. And it was just, it was there for the taking. Um, So some of it was play calling. Some of it was just the Niners getting out of position. I mean, you've got Quan Alexander who was out of position on one run and it ended up costing the Niners a little bit. You've got some defensive linemen that were out of position. I mean, it was that opening drive. I was like, okay, this, this is going to be an interesting slog fest, but ultimately that turnover that Adrian Peterson coughed up was the turning point in the game because after that, the Redskins did not gain another first down the rest of the game. And that's been his biggest Achilles heel for his entire career. He's been such a great player for so long, but the issue that he has always had, it, it, it was in his rookie year, it was in every single year of Minnesota, it was he had issues fumbling the ball. And now they don't happen as often, but it, like you said, that was a bad, bad time. And I don't know how that drive would have resulted because we missed a field goal already. I didn't know if we were really going to try another one or if we were just going to try and, and do our best to march it down to the end zone and make something happen. But it's it's a big what if because the, they were moving the ball on that drive, but that costly fumble came at quite literally the worst time of the game. And like you said, no other first down. So whatever air was in the proverbial balloon was completely out of it once he fumbled the ball. The Redskins only had three drives that lasted longer than three plays. And all three of them ended pretty disastrously. You think of the opening drive that ended in a missed field goal. On the 12th play of that drive, you've got a 10-play 51-yard drive in the second quarter where Washington moves to the 28-yard line, but Peterson is stuffed on fourth and inches on a fantastic play from Julian Taylor. I mean, he just completely shoots the gap between the center and guard and, and absolutely gets penetration. And then Ronald Blair on the back just does a little bit of a cleanup. You could tell that Peterson was frustrated after that. Um, and then, of course, you've got the turnover. I mean, it, it was definitely a, a slog fest. This was old school football. And 
you know, even though you've got Kyle Shanahan, who's a high flying offensive coordinator, he was like, you know what, we can even bring our old school football team and win that way as well. Give me, give me that set one more time. What you, it was three drives that lasted more than three plays. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They had three drives that lasted longer than three plays, and all of them ended not well. Um, and it is not a coincidence that they threw a Terry McLaurin twice. That's yeah. <laughs> we talked about this in the preview, right? Yeah. That is their biggest playmaker. They threw the ball to him twice. They didn't, and one of them was a terrible screenplay that didn't work. So he had one reception. They tried this weird little jet sweep thing that they do every week with Steve Sims. It worked once against New England, and now they run it every single week. They needed to get the ball in Terry McLaurin's hands. They had no option of doing that because Bill Callahan and the offense didn't seem to tr- trust Case Keenum's throwing ability. So I don't think it's a coincidence that they could not um, hold drives when they weren't doing their best to get the ball in the hands of their best playmaker. Those things are intertwined, and that's the reason um, that this team lost. I mean, that's the reason the team isn't good right now because they make silly decisions by not doing their best to put the ball in the hands of the playmakers. The 49ers put the ball in the hands of the playmakers. It may not have been the prettiest thing in the world, but they got the ball in the guy, in the hands of guys that could make plays, and they did make plays. The Redskins didn't. When you throw at your best receiver twice, you're not going to win. Yeah, I mean, George Kittle on those third down clutch plays, he had one early on where he ends up getting right to the sticks and getting a first down and then sliding another yard really to, to get out of bounds. And then that that third down late in the game where he just goes and plucks the ball, I, I just about had a heart attack. But I mean, yeah, <laughs> you, you've got players that can do that. And, and despite all that, George Kittle's not my player of the game. I think if I'm going to pick a player of the game for the 49ers this week, it's going to have to be someone on the defensive line. And for me this week, it, it's Eric Armstead. All three of his tackles were stops. He had a sack, and that sack was, it was a quick sack. I mean, the, the, even though Case Keenum only dropped back to, to pass, like, what, 12 times? The Niners still had three sacks. Um, and on this one, Eric Armstead just literally pushes the guard out of the way. It's almost like the guard was, like, a simulated blocking, like, dummy. He was just like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm supposed to move out of the way here. Uh, and Eric Armstead completely just gets to, to Keenum and crunches him. I, I feel bad for Keenum because I can't imagine hitting that wet that wet mud pile that was a lake uh, was a lot of fun as often as he did. <laughs> I do have a player of the game as well, and I'm, I'll stick with the 49ers. Uh, I, it was it was Bosa, and it was only Bosa because he had that late sack, but the slip and slide after I thought was hilarious. I watched that, and I was with my parents watching it, and everyone in the house was just cracking up. It was yeah. hilarious because that's kind of what this game was. It was slippery all over the place, and that was Bosa getting a sack and then celebrating, and that's kind of the thing that makes football fun. Now, our radio broadcast, not a fan of that. They did not like yeah, that Yeah, I heard about that. For, for those Niner fans that are not aware, fill them in on what the, the radio broadcast was, was about when that was happening. Well, Larry Michael was not happy. And one of the things that he said, he was very, very upset. And he said that the Redskins are going to remember that. And that's cool. Like, they can remember that all they want. But what is that really going to do? I mean, the team is 1-6 right now. They, they don't really stand a chance of seeing this team, this 49er team, again, any time in the near future. So... He, he was very upset. It was like it was almost as if he was trying to make a statement and almost willing a turnaround because, you know, sometimes they that's what it takes to turn a team around. Something someone will get slighted a little bit and that 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 fuels the fire. That's not going to happen with this team. They're one and six. They have so many questions at the offensive um, side of the ball, especially with the quarterback. So they can remember that all they want. I thought it was funny. It was a great play. And that was just kind of the fun of football. It it. It was the game in one play because the, the weather was atrocious. Everyone was sliding throughout the course of the game. So to see them have a little bit of fun with it, I didn't take it that seriously at all. I thought it was funny. So that that's why he is my player of the game. He made me laugh. 
Yeah, that was a great play. Made for some great pictures. Uh, and you know what? I, I know that you're a, a great a great individual, a great human being, because you can look at that, watch some football, and be like, you know what? That's kind of funny. This is, at the end of the yep. day, it's, it's funny and it's a sport. <laughs> I put myself in his shoes, and I would have done the exact same thing. I think most fun-loving people would have done the exact same thing. I agree. Well, thanks, Denton, for coming on. You can find Denton on the Pig's Pen podcast over on Hog's Haven. And Denton, where can they follow you on Twitter if they want to catch your musings about the Redskins? You can follow me on Twitter at Denton underscore day. If you just want to see me rage about the Redskins throughout the course of the year, that's the place to do it. Because trust me, there will be some rage tweets in the near future. But uh, thanks again for coming on. And hopefully you get a fantastic head, uh, shiny new head coach uh, for the for the offseason. Yeah, that's what I'm hoping for. At the very least, we're rocking with the Nats right now. So go Nats. That they're, they're holding me afloat mentally at the moment. So thanks. I appreciate you having me on twice. And best of luck with you guys and the rest of your season. And next up to preview the upcoming game against the Carolina Panthers, it is Billy Marshall, who writes for Cat Scratch Reader. You can find him on Twitter at BillyM underscore 91. Billy, how's it going? Doing well. How are you? Doing really well. It's been actually a couple of years since the last time you were on the show, since the last time the Niners played Carolina. This was, I think, way back in like 2017. Things are a little different nowadays uh, with between the <laughs> Niners and, and the Panthers. Yeah, um, Carolina was coming off a rough year, and I believe that was uh, week one of 2017. You guys were just starting out at a new regime with Shanahan and Lynch, and I believe your quarterback that day was good old Brian Hoyer. That's exactly right. I think the most memorable part of that game was Jaquaski Tart's interception, that one-handed grab near the end zone. I think that was about the only thing that people need to remember from that game because it was not pretty. But now, of course, the, the Shanahan regime has really reformed the roster. Things are looking up for the Niners. And really, like Carolina coming into this game, it's not going to be a cakewalk by any stretch, but Carolina's found a way to win a varied set of games so far coming into this game against the Niners. And it really is on the back of their defense. I mean, they, they kind of had a scrappy win, a scrappy loss, I should say, against the Rams. They gave up 30 to the Rams. But they held the Texans to 10. They held the Saints to 13. Those are pretty explosive offenses. Um, and so, you know, this is really a team that is starting to find its footing. They've won what now five games straight and or no four games straight, I should say. And, and really, the, the yeah, news is uh, the news is Kyle Allen, right? Yeah, yeah. So Kyle Allen's the talk of the town. Um, I mean, I, I guess we'll get into it a little later. I, I think he's getting a little bit too much, um, you know, recognition because, yeah, I mean, just he's not really uh, doing more than what's expected but yeah i mean he's keeping the offense functional which is all you can really ask for well the stats that you'll hear for kyle allen is of course that he's 4-0 on the season so far he's completing 65 percent of his passes seven touchdowns no picks i of course have my thoughts i have a feeling they might align with yours but tell me your unfiltered thoughts because it sounds like you're not necessarily on the kyle allen bandwagon no, not at all, because i think one thing you're forgetting and a lot of people when they cite kyle allen's uh, no interception and his touchdown interception ratio along with his 4-0 start is that he also has fallen the ball seven times. And I think two, only two of them have been recovered by the opposition, maybe three. Uh, I have to look at that. But regardless, he's fumbled seven times, um, which is a little lost uh, when the discussion about him comes up. So, and I've always told myself that, you know, fumbles can are probably more damaging than interceptions because you're giving up the ball, you know, in negative territory. So, I mean, obviously with interceptions, you have the potential to run it back. 
and, and on top of that, too, I think that he's been really fortunate uh, by not throwing interceptions, whether it's um, defenders dropping the ball or he's just making like a really inaccurate throw that gets uh, bailed out by a receiver that's in, you know forces an incompletion or makes a spectacular catch. I think there are certain instances where he's been a little fortunate, and that and that stuff does tend to even out over the course of the season. So as you know, we discuss the Forno start and his performances. It is being said with an extra small sample. I think that should be recognized. Well, you know, I think you touch on a lot of really important bits because I do think that the the Kyle Allen train's a little a little hyped up. His play has really been uneven. I think one of his biggest issues is how he handles pressure and, and how he loose he is with the football because you're absolutely right. He's fumbled uh, a lot. And while those fumbles have not been recovered by the defenses, those are still turnover-worthy plays that ultimately uh, are going to catch up with you when the fumble luck begins to go against you. And the 49ers are eighth in pressure percentage at this point. They're, they're pressuring passers on about 40% of dropbacks. Even in that money game against Washington, they still managed to get three sacks. And so when you, when you look at a player who maybe doesn't throw the ball necessarily into coverage, but is a little loose with the ball when things get messy in the pocket, and, and you've got a defensive line who's able to get to you about four out of ten times you drop back, that, that, that's, a, percent, that's a, a recipe for perhaps turnovers, uh, which could sink the Carolina Panthers early. And yeah, and that, that's sort of been the fear with a lot of um, you know people who continue to bring up a lot of the flaws that Allen brings. And I want to be clear, like he's a perfectly fine backup quarterback, and I think that you know it's it's essentially important what what you what you can get from a backup. And I mean, you guys have a good backup with Mullins, and uh, I mean you're seeing what New Orleans what, what they're doing with their backup, winning four straight or five straight actually, and. I mean, he brings that. He brings like a level of consistency, but at the same time, he's not going to elevate an offense like you would see from a Cam Newton. And just to bring up, you know, the point you just made, under pressure, I mean, he's been really bad. I mean, it's uh, I mean, sub fifty percent completion percentage, and then, um, you know, some of his just accuracy has been really poor in that department. And on top of that, there's been a lot of like. Uh, just his pocket movement, it's been really, really poor. So, like, he'll get to, like, the end of his drop. And, you know, in, in some cases, like, I don't want to, like, overrate this Carolina offensive line. But, I mean, they're, they've been fine the past few weeks. And, I mean, they would create some sort of alley for him to step up into. And he just refuses to. Uh, I mean, it's sort of like when you're playing Madden and you're just, like, dropping all the way back and, you know, to avoid as much pressure as you can and just launch downfield. That's sort of what he's doing. And I think you're seeing a lot of edge rushers, like they're taking their angles like really deep. And it just, I mean, it, it really puts the offensive tackle in a difficult position um, because, yeah, I mean, you really, he, he's just avoiding stepping up in the pocket so many times. Yeah, the depth of a quarterback's drop is a big deal, and it can contribute to a quarterback getting sacked, even if the tackle does everything the right way, right? Offensive line needs to kind of know where quarterbacks are in order to help create a pocket for them and really if if the play happens and Allen can get the ball out on time if he can play within structure he actually plays okay he's you know he gets the ball out on time he's fairly okay in the intermediate areas of the field but the problem is really his accuracy his accuracy is remarkably inconsistent if you look this is something that PFF had in their game preview but if you look at the 32 NFL quarterbacks with at least 100 aim passes so far this season Allen owns the third highest percentage of passes that have been charted as uncatchable. 
basically, and that's about like a quarter of his passes are uncatchable. I tweeted out a play earlier today where he's got DJ Moore on a on a slant. He makes the right read. I mean, it's off coverage. It's cover three. It's a quick slant. It's it's the right place to go with the ball. But the ball is way the hell behind Moore, uh, and it ends up being incomplete. His accuracy is inconsistent, and ultimately, you know, if if people are thinking like, oh, he might be better than Cam Newton, he should start. It's like, no, Cam Newton's a better quarterback when healthy. Um, it's <laughs> yeah. just it's just that he's you know he's he's in that QB wins camp, and you know how people love QB wins. Um, but he's you know he's playing, I think, like you said, like a backup inconsistently, and the 49ers hopefully can force him into a mistake. Yeah, so and that's going to be the interesting part because Carolina, they've had some injuries on the offensive line. Uh, you know, they're... Yeah, it doesn't seem like your offensive line is is all that good, uh, especially because you got backups in there. Yeah, no, I mean, the first two weeks it was really bad because they put a guy, Daryl Williams, on the left side, which in his career, even if you go back to college and... I mean, I can't believe I'm saying this, but even in high school, he's been like a predominantly right tackle and right guard throughout his like football career and for some reason they put him on the left side because they didn't trust their uh rookie left tackle greg little and and to be fair he was dealing with some injuries and i think he could have been out but um you know little played against arizona and he played against houston he did really well in those games but unfortunately he's been a concussion protocol um since then he missed the tampa game and i believe he's still not practicing so i don't expect him to play this week so their left tackle now is a guy they drafted in the sixth round uh dennis daly and uh, i think he got a lot of plaudits deservedly so for his performance against the um bucks in london uh but but i do think that watching the tape of that he they were sending a lot of help his way and i mean credit to him he did his job um, I'm just not ready to kind of go over the top with the praise. And so, uh, but on the other side of the line, the right side, Taylor Moten, I mean, since they drafted him, uh, it took about a year for him to finally kneel down the spot, but he was like a really favorite prospect of mine coming out. And uh, I mean, he's been ad- as advertised. He's done really well uh, as a pass blocker in particular. And then uh, Trey Turner has been out the last few weeks and Daryl Williams. Uh, I mean, he's looked a lot more comfortable on the right side and, uh, he, he's been doing a decent job at right guard. So uh, I, I expect Turner to start and uh, Williams to be like the swing tackle. Um, I, I think Daly, he was dealing with a little bit of injuries, but it looks like he's practicing, so I expect him to play. And then uh, the center, they, they just uh, signed Matt Paradis uh, this offseason. They gave him a, a pretty decent deal. He was probably one of the better centers out in the market. And then uh, Greg Van Roten, their left guard, he, I mean, he's pretty solid, nothing spectacular, but... Um, overall as a pass blocking unit, they've certainly improved the past like three to four weeks. And I think we'll get into this a little later when we're discussing McCaffrey, but overall run blocking, uh, I mean, it's inconsistent too. Um, but I think that they just ran into a, you know, a buzzsaw with the bucks, uh, the previous uh, week. Yeah. What's interesting is that that interior, right? Your center is not one who's been playing super duper well, Matt Paradis and, and when you look at the interior of what the the 49ers can do, I mean, they've got people that they can seem seemingly cycle through there whenever it is that they want to get someone like DeForest Buckner arrest. Eric Armstead, of course, is playing really, really good, but he lines up on the outside and only lines up on the inside on, on pass rushing down. So th- this is one of the, the games that I think is probably going to go through Christian McCaffrey because, well, that's what the Panthers do. Their entire offense is predicated on, on Christian McCaffrey. 
And it's really difficult to contain someone like him because the Panthers have a very, very creative run game. They're, they're very adept at a, a run that the Niners have seen recently in the last couple of weeks, and they probably will see more of against the Panthers. And that's kind of that, that sift action or split zone run where it looks like it's going to be a, a wide zone to one side, but that ends up really not designed to cut back, but that's kind of where the natural lane ends up. And, and you've got someone coming back to, uh, to block that backside defensive end. Christian McCaffrey runs that play very, very well. The Panthers, I think, uh, also have a lot of creative things they can do in the run game. And ultimately, the Niners' defense is going to have to trust its keys and trust its eyes because McCaffrey breaks one tackle and he's gone. Oh, for sure. And, and I think that, I mean, we can discuss the value of what a running back is for hours and hours. Um, but can, Is that an hours-long discussion, is it? <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I don't know. It's a debate that ranges with so many opinions. I, I kind of stand in the middle of it. I think that, you know, the right scheme, I mean, you would like a good running back. I know you, the 49ers have invested a decent amount in that position of the past few years. And, uh, I mean, some other teams, they don't. Uh, but, I mean, it is what it is. For me, I think that McCaffrey is obviously, um, I don't want to say transcendent, but he, he's certainly like a really good um, running back. But, I mean, as you saw, like, two weeks ago in their most recent game, they played – uh, the best run defense in the NFL in Tampa, and they just like completely shut them down. And that just goes to my overall philosophy that I think that the scheme matters more for a rush offense than um, maybe an individual talent. And that's nothing against McCaffrey because he's, I think his value as a receiver, you know, brings a lot to an offense that you wouldn't think otherwise. So I think North Turner has done a lot of interesting things with the offense, mainly that, you know, he's using a lot of motion to set up um, runs. And you saw that long touchdown run against Jacksonville uh, where, uh, I mean, he was continuing to motion Samuel and Moore uh, to create gaps and dictate where, you know, the linebackers will be in that, you know, essentially McCaffrey was untouched for at least like, you know, the entire run. And, his replacement are his backup at that during that game Bonifon. He came in later in the fourth when McCaffrey was cramping a little and he saw, you know, a pretty wide open hole for a 58 yard touchdown. So, um, yeah, I mean, obviously I think McCa- the offense will be run through him. Uh, I mean, I'm not a huge fan of it. I think that, you know, in this modern NFL, you really want to, you know, build an offense around the passing game. And I think Carolina has, you know, two really up and coming receivers and DJ Moore and Curtis Samuel um, so, but I get why they lean on it, um, mainly because of the limitations of their quarterback. And I mean, this isn't a good offense. Let's not get it twisted. I mean, it certainly has uh, potential, uh, when you put, get Cam Newton back, but, um, right now I, I think this offense is certainly the biggest weak, weak link of the team. And, um, I mean, they're going to be certainly up against it this week against <laughs> probably the second best defense in the NFL. Yeah, ultimately, the the run game with Christian McCaffrey doesn't scare me as much as the pass game because he is electric with the ball in his hands. And, I mean, it, him, him running a Texas route is just about unstoppable. And and if you put a safety on him, if you put a linebacker on him, I think for the Niners, this is where someone like Quan Alexander can make his money because Quan Alexander, he you know he's not always the, the best linebacker or the biggest stoutest, but he is fast, and he has come to the 49ers as someone who can cover and in some cases, cover a bit more than he can play actually linebacker, at least for a linebacker. 
And so I think if you're going to put a linebacker on him, you're looking at someone like Quan Alexander. Fred Warner may get an assignment on him as well, but Fred Warner played that overhang position in college, so he's used to covering and playing in space as well, even though he's, he's bulked up since his college days. So I think that this is going to be a test for the linebackers. You could even see the Niners play more cover three and roll Jimmy Ward or, or Jaquaski Tart into the box to provide a little bit of a rat in that middle of the area or the middle of the field area because that's where McCaffrey likes to make his money. I mean, that long touchdown pass that he caught against Jacksonville, it wasn't a long pass. It was a long touchdown run. But it, it's a beautiful little route where he just kind of runs out, stops, fakes like he's going to go one way. Miles Jack is like already breaking towards the sideline and he just cuts back inside. It was a play completely designed to run towards McCaffrey in the middle of the field. You got two mm-hmm. clearing routes. The, the seas parted. You know, doves flew, song sang, and it was an easy walk-in touchdown for McCaffrey. That's the kind of stuff that I worry about against the Niners because they, they do play fast and they do play aggressive. And, and I do think that Carolina can use that aggressiveness against them. Oh, for sure. And, yeah, I don't think Jacksonville's linebackers were really good, so that kind of exposed them um, in, in that game in particular. And I, I expect a much tougher uh, case. I mean, when you're looking at the guys that – the 49ers have with Warner and uh, Quan Alexander, who who obviously is familiar with McCaffrey, uh, being you know, being in the same division the past uh, few years. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'm a little wary of that too. I, I just think that uh, in order for their offense to really create explosive plays, they really have to um, you know take a lot of vertical shots on the field. And I mean, to be to their credit, they did a lot more intermediate stuff against Tampa, um, maybe especially in the 15 to 20 yard area. Um, I mean, they were running a lot of drive routes and uh, seam concepts to guys like Olsen and um, Moore and uh, Samuel also had a pretty decent game. Um, but but as far as McCaffrey goes, I mean, that's essentially his bread and butter route. Like some running backs, I mean, they're only going to catch screens. Like I, I've been watching Dalvin Cook, some of his targets, and essentially it's just all screens. But McCaffrey, um, I, I would say he's probably ran less than four or five like designed screens this year. Uh, I think that the Texas route is certainly his bread and butter. And I think uh, I, I would like to see them also kind of flex him out to run traditional um, wide receiver routes as well, because I think that's another area of strength of his. Now, of course, if you're not familiar with the Texas route, it's a route that begins in the backfield and basically is a 45 degree angle run towards the sideline and then cut back inside at a 45 degree angle, which usually leaves a running back open near the middle of the field, especially when you can move like Christian McCaffrey. Now, the, the, really, the game, I think, is going to be defense against defense. And it could be a low-scoring game. I mean, right now, the over-under set at 42. If I were a betting man, I, I might bet the under because it's Carolina's defense that's really carrying the team. And you look at a couple matchups like George Kittle versus Eric Reed, Brian Burns versus either of the tackles. I think Brian Burns is one hell of a talent. Uh, and, and while he's more of a situational pass rusher, I think people will see a little bit of all. If you're a Niner fan, you'll see a little bit of Alden Smith in Brian Burns' game. And, and it, it's going to be a hell of a time to, to score points against that defense. So, Billy, when you've seen teams put up points against the Carolina defense, what things have they done to stay effective against the defense that is probably one of the you know five to ten best defenses in the NFL? Yeah, so I, I would say that the Jacksonville game, speaking of that again, that was probably the one game where I, I was – a little down on the defense. And I think what they did in, in, in particular where they, 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 they really attacked the middle of the field um, pretty well. And I, I would also say that uh, the receiver for the Jaguars, Chark made some really spectacular grabs that kind of helped 
uh, you know, create a lot of explosive plays. And um, but but for me, I don't think they really, you know, um, initiate a lot of pressure. And, and I think that for them, th- their entire defense is predicated on uh, getting pressure. And what that unlike San Francisco, which can bring four guys to create, uh, Carolina needs to bring blitzes, in, and they do that in a variety of ways by. Uh, you know, either calling fire zone coverages, um, you know, dropping a defensive lineman um, and bringing a safety on a blitz or just calling your traditional corner blitzes with the cornerback or linebacker coming off the edge. Um, yeah, I mean, that that's essentially like, you know, what how they're going to, you know, create pressure. And I, I would also say that on the back end, that their secondary has done a really good job with they're doing a lot of interesting pattern match stuff. Uh, with their coverages, which allow the front four to, you know, gain um, further pressure and really affect the quarterback. Uh, I mean, watching that Houston game, Deshaun Watson, he's obviously known for holding on to the ball a little bit too much. But I would say at least three of the sacks from that game were a result of him just uh, not seeing anything downfield. So he was forced to hold it and not throw it away. And that created sacks for guys like a Mario Addison or um, a Brian Burns. But at the same time, I mean, you look at the talent level, it's pretty good. Uh, I mean, it's not elite. You know, K1, or excuse me, K1 Short, he's on injured reserve, but they were fortunate enough to sign Gerald McCoy uh, late in the offseason. And uh, Burns is you know, an up and coming pass rusher. And I mean, you guys are pretty familiar with Bruce Irvin. He's still uh, a decent rotational edge rusher. And Mario Addison's probably one of the more underappreciated guys in the league. So. I mean, they certainly have talent there. It's nothing eye-popping, but I think for them to really affect a game, it, it's going to come as a result of you know, dis- disguised looks and uh, pressure being called. Yeah, you know, I think ultimately you, you said that Jacksonville had success in the middle of the field, and, and you look at that Jacksonville game, and they were really trying to stretch the the Carolina defense horizontally on runs uh, several times. They, they didn't have a lot of success running up the middle with Leonard Fournette because I think of the strength of that interior, and especially when you got Luke Keekley there. I mean, it, it's going to be difficult to have much run success with Keekley, but I think that you're going to see a lot of edge uh, or trying to get runs to the perimeter, and you're going to see Jimmy Garoppolo getting the ball out quickly to the middle of the field, uh, and ultimately I think the, the Niners will find some success, just enough success against Carolina in order to win the game. So uh, I do think they win the game, ultimately, if we get to the predictions. I think that the line right now is 5.5, over-under is 42. I think they're probably under the the over-under, but but I do think they win, uh, and I think they win maybe by a touchdown, so I think they cover as well. What do you think happens in the game, Billy? Yeah, for me, I think it's... I I don't know, like, I've just been having this feeling, like, I think Carolina's going to match up pretty well, especially... um, I mean, they, Ron Rivera in the past, like, four years, I believe, four or five, I think it was four years, they've won after the bye week. So I, I think he does a pretty good job of getting his team ready after the bye. Um, and I think it's going to be a close game. I mean, if you recall back in 2013, um, you know, Carolina was an up-and-coming team, and they uh, went to San Francisco to face one of the better teams in the NFL, and they came out with a 10-9 victory, which was kind of like a defensive stalemate. So I think it'll be something similar to that. Um, I, I don't know, uh, which side it'll go to, but I, I do think Carolina will cover, uh, because I do think it'll be low scoring. Uh, and, and I want to also say that their special teams wise, they have a rook. And I know you guys have been dealing with a lot of missed field goals. Carolina has two, uh, especially the past two weeks. Uh, Graham Gano, he went on IR 
and and so they picked up this rookie uh, Joey Sly. And to be fair to him, he's been kind of he, I mean he was really good like the first four weeks, but the past two weeks, um, you know his accuracy has been a little hit or miss. It's nothing too bad like uh, Robbie Gold, but um, overall their special teams unit you know, is still really good uh, coverage wise. And um, they just released one of their punt returners who was having a really doing a really poor job um, handling the ball. So, yeah, I think special teams could also make a difference in this game, especially with the punt coverages. And so, yeah, I expect Carolina to cover. I think it'll be a low game, low scoring game. Um, so that's where I lean right now. But you never know. <laughs> you know I was really looking forward to making my annual Graham Ganope tweet. Because that's that's always a lot of fun. And and if you want to talk special teams, I mean, we get our our long snapper back this week from a 10 game PED suspension because that's something that happens with long snappers often. Uh, so I think Robbie Gold, franchise kicker Robbie Gold gets his magic back. And and, and I think ultimately, you know, it, it's tight. I, I do think that I could easily see a world where Carolina covers, especially because it's going to be low scoring. So I, I am more I'll put it this way. I'm more worried about this game. Uh, than I ever was about the Washington game, despite how low scoring the Washington game was. I think, you know, when you look at the the teams the Niners have played thus far, there's there's kind of like you know two two classes of teams that they played, and, and this is a team that's up there in in the terms of like they have to really play well and they can't like play loosey goosey or turn the ball over five times and still win this game because Carolina has enough pieces to make this game very very interesting. Uh, well, Billy, thanks for coming on the show. If if you, you want to read some more of Billy's breakdowns, he does some great film room work for Cat Scratch Reader. Uh, and Billy, where can they follow you on Twitter? Yeah, so I'm on Twitter at BillyM underscore 91. You can follow me there. And I write for Cat Scratch Reader, which is the SB Nation affiliate for the Panthers. Yeah, I really enjoy uh, watching your breakdowns on Twitter. So if you want to get some more film stuff, uh, similar to some of the stuff that I post, definitely give Billy a follow on the Twitters. Uh, thanks, Billy. Good luck this weekend, but not too much luck. <laughs> thanks. Well, that about does it for this week's edition of the Better Rivals podcast. Thanks again to all of our guests, to Denton Day, to Billy Marshall, and to one Mr. David Newman for coming on and helping out with this week's show. Thanks again for tuning in, and as always, go Niners. <laughs>